Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Italian Wine Podcast, as Wine to Wine 2020 media partner, is proud to present a series of sessions chosen to highlight key themes and ideas and recorded during the two-day event held on November 23rd and 24th, 2020. Wine to Wine 2020 represented the first ever fully digital edition of the Business to Business Forum. Visit winetowine.net and make sure to attend future editions of Wine to Wine Business Forum. Hello, my lovely friend Robert. Good morning. It's nice to be on a screen with you again. It's time We're for me live. to introduce you. We're live. It is. We have an audience. Go ahead. And, all right. So, for everyone who doesn't know Robert and the shenanigans he gets up to, I asked him earlier tonight if there was a wine to wine that he had not presented at, and we couldn't find one. So, I'm certain Stevie can correct us on that. So, Robert, you consult wine brands all over the world. You own your own wine brand that sells all over the world. You have encyclopedic knowledge that dates back to probably before I was born. Not really, but that's my story. And more importantly, you are a recovering wine critic, which makes it worthwhile for all of us to bring our coffee to the table and sit down and listen to what you have to say, having lived on both sides of that fence. Thank you. I can go even further, Polly, because not only am I a recovering wine critic, but I'm also um, a not quite recovering wine competition organizer because way back in 1983, and I'll come back to this in a minute, um, <clears throat> with uh, a gentleman called Charles Metcalf, um, we started something called the International Wine Challenge, which became the world's biggest wine competition. And I ran it in Japan and China and India and Russia and all sorts of places. And I'm still involved now with a wine competition in Germany called Modesfini. So I have got a, a foot, either a current foot or an old foot in, in the camps of the, the title of this presentation. And I'm not used to giving presentations without PowerPoint. And I'm also not used to not seeing the audience. And I'm going to come back to that because I think it's quite relevant. So I love Zoom. I love the fact that we can all do this without traveling, um, using up all those carbon, uh, all the carbon to getting places. But um, it's nice to see what who's out there and how they're reacting. Now, before this, um, I wondered whether there was an event in Switzerland called Choc to Choc, Chocolate to Chocolate, or something somewhere else called Cheese to Cheese, or Cars to Cars, or Perfume to Perfume. And I then went to look and see what well, you you know, I haven't seen chocolate with, I'm sure there is somebody giving chocolate Parker points out of 100 if you're looking, but I haven't seen it. But anyway, I went looking for chocolate trophies on uh, Google, and Google gave me lots of options. And what you can get is you can get an Oscar made of chocolate. You can get all sorts. You can get cups. You can get all sorts of things. Um, and I looked up chocolate medals, and they come in little tin foil and so on. There is no – Google did not give me any evidence of any competition anywhere in which people win trophies for their best chocolate. I know they exist. I know they exist in Italy and all over the place, but they're not important enough to get onto the first three pages of Google, which was full of chocolate trophies. So one of the things that isn't happening is people aren't buying chocolate because it's got a gold medal or not very many of them. 
Another piece of research I did was to ask around um, my friends and, and contacts in the wine world and, and elsewhere um, to tell me what the following three names actually, what uh, impact they, they had, what, what reaction they had to them. The first one was Jonathan Ives or Johnny Ives. And um, actually, it was a small straw poll, but um, half the people had no idea at all who that person was. And one of them had a vague idea. Um, then I said, Greg Lambricht. One of them knew who Greg was. And I'm sorry about that because Greg is, is, is somebody I think it was a friend. And the other one was John Ango. And no one knew who John Ango was. And I thought this was quite interesting because these three people have had an effect in one way or another on our lives. One of them perhaps a little less than the other. Jonathan Ives is, was the design chief at Apple. But nobody buying an Apple, an iPhone, or a computer, or whatever, thinks I'm buying this because there's this bald-headed genius called Johnny Ives, who's now Sir Johnny Ives. They might or might know a little bit about Mr. Cook or Mr. Jobs or whatever, but not very much. John Angove is the person who gave us the bag in box for wine. Uh, in Australia. Nobody knows anything about him outside Australia and even there. And Greg Lambrecht, of course, and many people here may know, is the father of Coravin, who I think is a game changer. But, you know, lots of people are very happily using their Coravins, happily without knowing who Greg Lambrecht was. Except we as wine people think that everybody has to know who made the wine and where he lives and whether he's got a beard and whether he loves dogs and all this stuff. Actually, there's a huge number of people who don't. And then I sort of looked at the subject we're looking at, and it's, you know, it refers to scores, it refers to competitions, it refers to Instagram. And again, I've asked around this, and that a number of people hate scores. They hate Parker scores. How can you be that precise to give a wine 96 rather than 97? And next time you taste it, isn't it going to be different? Um, another lot of people actually are very negative about competitions because if you put your wine to three competitions, you get three different results. And as a wine producer, I now do that. And that's exactly what I find. Um, so I'll get a different score from Decanter Wine Awards to uh, the IWC, for example. And they also hate influencers because what right of these people to come from nowhere to, to be uh, on Instagram or YouTube or whatever telling us what to drink. Um, celebrity wines, absolutely, we all hate them. Uh, peer reviews. Vivino or the people you'll get on a, on a, on Naked Wines or Berry Brothers or whatever, people who no qualification telling us what they think about wine. We hate them. And, of course, on the list, the latest hate figure is clean wine. We really hate the idea of, of people selling wine as being clean. And the interesting thing about all of these, that, that we all hate for these different reasons, and I'm not going to go to why we hate them, is they're all actually reasons to buy wine. They're all being put out there. If I walk into a store in America and it's got 97-point sticker on a wine, that is going to make me want to buy the wine. But it may well be that when I look at the Krug Instagram or the Ekem uh, Instagram stories, the wonderful photography and the imagery and the references to food and the Krug ones, again, are giving me reasons to actually go and put down 100 or 200 or whatever it is, dollars on a bottle of Krug or Ekem. And that brings me to the... In important thing that I think we overlook, which is why people buy wine. And we, those of us possibly in this room, uh, this virtual room, think it's rational. We think that people are buying it because it's good, or possibly because it's value for money. It, that's, that's why some people will buy it. That's why maybe 5 or 10% maximum of the people buying wine will do it. But even those people, I think, very often are buying it irrationally. Why do people buy? Why do people spend $1,000, $5,000, $100,000 on a watch? 
You can buy something that tells the time very effectively for $5 or $10, and your phone will tell you the time. Why do people do that? It is an irrational purchase, unless you may believe that it's going to go up in value or whatever, which it probably won't. It is actually something that you want that makes you feel good about yourself, that makes you feel you've achieved something, or maybe you are going to pass it on to your kid, which is the Patek Philippe advertisement. And that, I think, is something that we don't actually think about enough when we're talking about wine. We don't think about what is going through the heads of the people who are buying wine and who is buying wine. And then I began to think about why we, how we got to where we are. And because, as Polly has said, I'm very old, um, I was around in the 1980s. And the 1980s is an extraordinary time, the early 80s, because things happened in the wine world that, that changed everything. The first thing was the arrival of new world wines internationally, um, after the Judgment of Paris, which was 1976, when the Californian Bordeaux-style and Burgundy-style wines did so well, and suddenly we started getting wines not just from America, but also Australia and Chile and later on New Zealand, and um, but also Eastern Europe, varietal wines. Secondly, retail changed. We had supermarkets, we had big retail getting into wine. Suddenly the wall of wine appeared. We hadn't had that before in most of the world. And thirdly, crucially, we had baby boomers. We had a whole new generation who were moving into wine, and wine was very, very confusing. So how did we make sense of it? Well, one of the ways we made sense of it was with competitions. We'd had competitions in the past, Australia, New Zealand, South, but they were local. In France, we had local agriculture. Suddenly, we had competitions. We started the International Wine Challenge in 84. Decanter came along afterwards. Mundus Vini. There's been a whole swathe of competitions. Before that, there was only the International Wine Spirit Competition, which is a very good competition today, but it wasn't great back in those days. And of course, Parker started late 70s, but really he took off in 83. And Parker took off largely because of Bordeaux. But he gave people the confidence to buy wine. We, with the International Wine Challenge, gave people the confidence to buy wine. But something else happened that we overlook, I think, when we look back to those times, which was those new retailers getting in actually had another effect. They gave exposure to wine, they gave distribution to wine, but they actually ensured that we all had low margins. They were selling wine like soap powder, and they wanted us to make no money on it. And any money we would make would end up uh, being stripped off us in terms of discounting as producers. And that changed the game as well, because without margins, you can't actually spend money on marketing. And that's very interesting, because if you look at the world of booze, you look at spirits and you look at uh, champagnes, those drinks have 25%. They put 25% of their uh, their income into telling people how uh, all about themselves. And the interesting thing is they don't generally spend a lot of that time telling people about the scores they've got. They do all sorts of things, but a lot of it is emotional. Some of them do use it, telling about scores. And this was a story that I really love when I was researching this, which is a brand called Grey Goose which some of you may have come across, um, it does have links to wine, even though it's a vodka, because when it was launched by a guy called Sidney Franks in New York, um, he wanted to launch a vodka made in France because it was a cheap place to make vodka. And he said, oh, well, what are we going to call it? And he said, well, have we, what names have we got in our filing cabinet? And they had a name called Grey Goose, which was designed, originally chosen for a Libra milk. And they said, well, we'll use that. It's registered for alcohol. So they put that on their vodka. And he got it tasted, and he got a, it, it got the best rating from something called the Beverage Testing Institute of Chicago, which is something 
I mean, it may be a wonderful institute, but most of us hadn't heard of. But the important point of this story is Sidney Frank spent a lot of money, the 25% margin I was talking about, of taking full-page advertisements everywhere to tell everyone he had got this rating. That helped him get the wine into bars and into retail. But then the next thing he did was spend another lot of money putting his vodka into Sex in the City. And it was Grey Goose being in Sex in the City that really helped to uh, actually uh, take it into the, the stratosphere to the point that he was able to sell that brand for $2 billion. And the people who bought it, Bacardi, have just done something, again, a little bit different. They had pop-up bakeries. Bakeries are a vodka brand. They had pop-up bakeries in London where they were selling uh, bread, pastries, and so on, made from the same wheat that's used to make Grey Goose. No relevance at all except emotional. What is better than bread? What makes you feel more handmade than bread? So what this, this whole little journey is about is actually communication, which is doing all sorts of things at the same time for the same product. On the one hand, we have the rational aspect of we've got this prize from the Beverage Testing Institute. And the next thing is emotional. The people I love watching in Sex and the City are drinking this stuff. And then the last thing is, but it doesn't say what it's, whether it's good or bad. It's just the thing that you drink in Manhattan. And the third element is this, this is really wholesome, nice stuff made from wheat. Um, and let's remind you of that with the bread. And that then brings me to the whole gist of where this uh, topic should be taking us. It's not, should we be talking about scores or should we be talking about Instagram stories or should we? It's actually, maybe we do all of those or some of them. I think the wine, one of the things that frustrates me a lot about the wine industry is that we're looking for a recipe. The recipe is, oh, it's obscure grapes, or it's natural wine, or it's, uh, it, it's, it's blends, it's whatever. And we, we don't understand that the food world doesn't look for recipes. The food world has a huge range of different things going on out there. And somebody is doing falafels, and someone's doing fish burgers, and someone's got an Ethiopian restaurant. And if the Ethiopian restaurant catches the mood, we will have a chain of Ethiopian restaurants. And if not, we'll have one Ethiopian restaurant in one bit of Brooklyn that does really well. And the, the world will decide. But if the Ethiopian restaurant is able, the owner of that Ethiopian restaurant, is able to say, actually, I think Ethiopian food is only going to be interesting to 1% of the New York or the Manhattan diners. But 1% of Manhattan diners is a lot of people. If that of all of those people knew about my Ethiopian restaurant, actually maybe I'd fill my restaurant and have a chain of restaurants. And that brings me to the point that, that uh, I think that we as wine people don't think about enough. We make wine for ourselves for the most part. We don't think about who is going to buy our wine. So there's two things going on in parallel today. On the one hand, we have big companies, and we had Stephanie Gallo on yesterday, um, who is always fascinating. But you have Treasury, you've got a lot of these companies, and they are making wine specifically for targeted customers. So 19 Crimes famously was designed for young men who didn't fit into the wine world. And it's become a phenomenal, phenomenally successful brand. Cupcake was made for a completely different demographic of people. And it's not as broad as saying this is made necessarily for soccer moms or young men. Actually, now, as Polly and I have discussed often in, in terms of consultancy work, we talk about personas. These are effectively real people 
between three, four, five real individual human beings with lives, with pets, with kids, with houses, with bills, like this kind of music. And we actually think this is, who is this wine for? Now, you could either be saying we're going to make a wine for this person, or we can say, actually, we're not like that. We actually make the wine from our terroir. We make the wine that our father made, but it's still going to appeal to a particular kind of person. If I'm running an opera house and or a concert uh, venue and I'm putting on Bartok, or I'm putting on the Sex Pistols. I'm not expecting necessarily the same people to come to those two concerts, or I might get the same people, but they're going to be in a different mood. So how do I market those? And in wine, we've not been very good at that. So as far as I'm concerned, what we should be doing is not saying, is it this, is it that? We should be saying, who are we talking to? Who is going to get this message? So in terms of my wines, for example, I'm selling wines. Le Grand Noir is $10 a bottle in the US, 10 to $12. On our website, we have information about the vineyards. We're beautiful. In Minervois, we've got beautiful, beautiful 2,000-year-old wine region and so on. Some people actually are fascinated to know about the history of it. Not very many, to be very honest. Some people are interested to know about why it's got a black sheep on the label. Rather more of them. Other people actually want to know about who the background and the, the tour were. And there's some people who want the technical details. And when we did the picking and so on, and there aren't very many of those. But we know that actually by watching who is visiting the website, what they're looking at, what in terms of the messaging we're doing, we know which bits of our stories are interesting to which people. So I was in New Jersey last year, and um, early in the, the, this year, actually, before, before the travel stopped, and talking to Indian uh, owners of liquor stores in New Jersey. They didn't want to know scores, which is great, because actually my $10, $12 wine doesn't have any 95-point scores for some reason. Um, they were fascinated in Vivino. They actually liked the fact that we got a 4.1 or whatever from Vivino, because that was, that was good for a wine of my price category. But they were even more interested in the story about how my two partners and I had decided we wanted to take on Mondavi with a brand without any money. And that was a story. Now, is that story going to appeal to people who are going to buy my wine in a retail shop? Maybe not. But it appealed to the gatekeepers. So as far as I'm concerned, coming down to this, when we say what makes people buy wine, it's which people are going to buy which wine. And at that point, you begin to say, well, and why? Are they going to make the rational or the irrational purchase? Polly, uh, as, as a line that Polly uses, I love, which is what is the biggest competitor to a gym, to any particular gym? It's Netflix. And if I was showing you a slide, I prepared a slide for this, which I'm not using. What is the biggest competitor to your wine? It's the half price sticker on another wine. Or, and I love this in a supermarket, it's the screaming child. Because if you've got a supermarket shopper, remember 70, 80% of wine is bought in supermarkets by the people who are not the wine engaged. Actually, there's a high chance the person going through the wine aisle actually needs to get out of there very quickly because they are being dragged out of that store by a child who doesn't want to be there. I think we're on 1020. I'm not sure my time. It's probably 1120 your time in Italy. I think does that mean that I've come to the end of my bit and I can now take the brickbats? Yeah, I have some questions for you. Okay, so when we're looking at things like competition stickers, um, do you feel, and this is from the audience, do you feel that there is a moment when we overmarket? So one sticker is great, two you can possibly get by with. The lineup of stickers on the the 
shelf tag or the bottle is over the top and turns off the consumer who is I love that question um, and if you look online there's a, a South African winery called Sarensburg B-E-R-G Sarensburg and there's a great image of that they've got one bottle which has got more stickers on it than you can than you can actually imagine and I dug down and I found on Instagram they're not very strong on Instagram but they're, no, they're not too bad but they've got one guy there's a Polish guy who's obviously keen on wine but he doesn't he doesn't do that much on Instagram about wine he's he's, he's tattooed he's a, definitely goes to the gym a lot so but there's one picture of him holding the bottle with all its stickers on it and it's got 1400 likes which isn't bad on instagram um i think that the the, the, the point was buried in your question was um who again it's for i think that there are going to be some people who are going to say there's far too many stickers on that I think there are going to be other people who want to spend uh, a bit of money on a bottle of wine and it's got lots of stickers. And you think, yeah, why not? So, okay, when I go to see a movie, do I, the fact it's got 12 Oscars and three Césars from France and whatever, do we say, oh no, don't tell them how many different awards it's got? We don't. If I've got a book that's got 12 or 15 different great reviews from different critics, do I say, oh no, I only use one or two of those? And the other thing that's interesting about competitions, and this is very relevant, is that there are um, credible and less credible competitions. Let's be honest about it. Um, IWC was definitely, and, and I'd like to see Mendesvini, are, are among the credible ones. There are some that aren't. Does the consumer know the value of each sticker? Do they know which award is which? I think you told me about a, a New Zealand wine that was the only 100-point wine in New Zealand, which came from something that nobody, right? right? Um, Canadian. Canadian, right? Canadian. With all deference to, to, to Stephanie Gallo, Barefoot has on its uh, neck something saying the most awarded wine brand in America. Now, Barefoot hasn't had gold medals from the greatest critics, as far as I'm aware, but it's won lots of medals from lots of people. But actually, when I'm standing in the store, it gives me the confidence to buy that wine. And that's what we need to think about. It's the person, whoever they are, what is going to make them feel more confident? And maybe a lot of stickers works for some people. Okay. So another question from the audience is, would you agree that submitting a wine to a competition is the easiest possible way to gain international attention, assuming that you win? I know that you have... Um, um, you have a uh, no, yes, and no. If you don't tell people you've got it, no. Point one. If you tell everybody you've got it, yes. But if you tell everybody by sending an email saying, hey, we've won a gold medal or whatever, you will be surprised how quickly that hits the bin of the average journalist, everybody else. We don't read that stuff as writers very much. But if you spread the word, the interesting thing about competitions, and increasingly, I have to say, the Vivino ratings and so on, is actually with the gatekeepers. So if I want to go and sell my wine to a Swedish monopoly, I want to sell my wine to a British supermarket or whatever. Um, I send them saying, are you interested? Because if I send them a sample, it could probably get straight in the bin. I may have to contact them directly. I've got this wine that's had these kinds of awards. And they will say, oh, yes, okay, decanter, tick, IWC, tick, or whatever. Yes, I'll taste it. And if you say I've got 95 points from all these people no one's heard of, they may take no notice. So, yes, it is potentially. It's a very a quick way. It's a shorthand way. But my point about it is it's cheap. It, it costs money, but it's relatively cheap. And it's a lazy way if you don't spend the effort on actually uh, telling people. 
So we have a few more questions from the audience, but I want to jump in with one of my own. One of the issues that we know about professional reviewers is that they often can get set in their ways. You're going to get the same points or the same band point year on year on year. Do you think that uh, user-generated content, Instagram, Vivino, is actually more flexible and, and can give you uh, a more realistic breadth of variety from year to year of a brand? I Again, I think there's that you're, you're going for the recipe, saying is it A or is it B? I think that the the the, the 5% want to know what Tim Atkin or Jancis or whatever, and they've got great faith in that person. The, of the, the rest of the people, I think um, actually a broad answer is very useful. Bear in mind, by the way, very quickly, that we have this idea, and a lot of the people in here, imagine people standing in a store checking a wine before they buy it. Nobody does that. Very, very few people do that. But to your point, I was in Vietnam last summer, um, last year, and going to places we've never been to, I used the Lonely Planet Guide, a rough guide, and um, TripAdvisor. And you know what? They all worked. I can't say which of those worked better. I was very glad to have the man on the ground, woman on the ground from, from the Rough Guide or Lonely Planet, but I was also very glad to have 35 people or 50 people telling me that this restaurant in Da Nang was a good place to go for fish. So both can work, but they may not work on the same people. So based on your experience as a consultant working with brands who've adopted digital, all right, so there's the caveat, a statement. No recipes, nobody's asking for a recipe. Can you make any generalizations or recommendations about what kind of consumers veer more toward competition uh, and points and what kind of consumers veer toward user-generated content? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna be specific on that. We're talking about wine lovers, new drinkers, experts, wine geeks, it's a wonderful old. that's a wonderfully complex question and i think i think again four it, minutes it, it, to do that one. well basically i think it's when you say competitions i think that there are a lot of wine geeks out there who have decided they like the decanter wine i mean decanter is a it's a geek is geek territory they'd admit that i guess and so decanter readers will do the decanter wine awards and so the five percenters will do that, and the IWC may fit that. Um, I think the people who actually just see a sticker on a bottle saying it's got a gold medal from somewhere, um, whether they see it online or see it in the store, it's just a reassurance. And it's what I call, in a sense, it's due diligence. When, I, when you buy a house, you get someone to look over and find out whether it's the roof's falling in or not. If it's got one or two stickers on it, it's probably all right. When I look for a book on Amazon, and if, an, if a thousand people have given this book four stars, okay, some of them are fake and some of them aren't, but if, I, if enough of them four stars, and I, what I always do is I look at the negative reviews and see what sense they make. So I think we've got to divide our groups down into the geeks, and even the geeks are not one group because we've got Bordeaux geeks and Burgundy geeks, but we've got orange wine and natural wine geeks. And some of those people are absolutely, they hate the critics, some of them. They hate the competitions because they're anti the system. And some of those people would love peer reviews, but not necessarily the Vivino peer reviews. But what I have said, and I did see some quick, quick, quick finishes. Interestingly, Vivino is just, you look at the, the, the Gravners of this world, get the same kind of ratings on Vivino as you know, as you know, as you would expect them to get from top critics. I mean, high reviews. 
Okay, so I want to ask, Mateo's got a great question in the audience, which is, what about reviews or user-generated content to give a clear indication to consumers about the occasion to taste the wine that you're selling? For instance, a big dinner with a fiancé or a summer drink at a pool. You've talked a lot about we spend at different times in different ways. I love it, and I think it's one of the things Instagram does so brilliantly. I think one of the things – I don't think Instagram – I don't go and check wines on Instagram. I don't think many people do that. But it's when you actually see people sitting around a pool with the bottle. And you think, oh, yeah, that's what I, I'd love to be sitting around a pool, and if I were, I'd have that bottle. I think Instagram does that. And I think what I'd like to, to, to say quickly on this is that um, – so yes, occasionality is going to become more and more important. And I think imagery through things like Insta makes that relevant. But one thing you've got to remember is that if unless you're careful and depending whether you're spending money on Instagram or you're letting it happen organically, people are only going to see wine-focused images on Instagram if they are in a little bubble or a big bubble that has got wine in it. Unless there's a hashtag wine or hashtag wine drinking or hashtag Chardonnay or whatever, they may not see it. And that's one of the things that's quite interesting in the Krug and Ekem stuff. It's they're straying off into the worlds of food and lifestyle and pulling people in to their products in a way that I think is far cleverer than what I'm seeing from quite a lot of the wine world who start with wine and don't necessarily see outside that bubble. Okay, so let's wrap up with a fun question. What do you think the future of wine on TikTok is going to be? Well, I think... We are Gary V in the room. I think TikTok is fabulous. I was slow to it, but not as slow as some people have been. Um, and I think that it's interesting. I mean, Snapchat, just when I'm at it, let's not forget Snapchat, because the news this morning that you could get a slice of a million dollars a day between now and Christmas for putting something on Snapchat that goes viral. And the, the interesting thing about these is the discipline that they, they require. You have to be quick. You have to be engaging. And I think that it's the opposite of so much wine writing. I've judged a lot of wine writing, and it is so boring. Most wine blogs are appallingly boring. And they're all about writing people who are interested in wine, writing to people who are interested about wine. The great thing about Snapchat and TikTok is doing something that is going to attract a lot of the people that you want to talk to. And you don't, you're not going to talk to everyone. It may be a small, a small part of the market, but as the market gets big, that small part may be huge. We are at 1131. Do we get to keep talking or are we going to get, are we going to get shut down pretty soon? Let's keep going with some questions from the Well, audience. somebody closes the door, they'll throw us out. Close the door, so we'll keep going. Um, so do you feel like, just to actually share your expertise as someone who's been involved with competitions for so long, uh, and we just got the, yes, we're about to close. So <laughs> some of these we can get into hopefully in 15 minutes when we swap sides of the screen yep. and talk more about digital marketing. I look forward to that. Please come back. Polly knows so much more about this stuff than I do or anybody else I know. See you then. Thank you so much. Thank you. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.